on that uh, announcement for the Christmas uh, party or whatever you call it on the 15th. I've heard all kinds of rumors that uh, lead me to believe that it's going to be an evening to remember, so uh, you don't want to miss it if I can uh, advise you in that way. Also, I understand you can buy your tickets online from the website, and uh, so there's really no excuse uh, not to come uh, to do that. And uh, I know that you will have a good time in the Lord if you turn up. Let me, um, let me just begin this morning by asking you a couple of questions, kind of get us thinking together. How do you handle difficult issues in your family? What is the mechanism in your family that you use to facilitate those hard conversations that inevitably have to take place in every home. Where do you go to have a private conversation with your children, right, in order to make those painful and necessary course corrections in their lives? Well, in our home, we have dad's bedroom chats. Dad's bedroom chats. We have a very busy household and uh, a lot of people coming and going. And so in order to preserve the privacy and dignity of our children, we, uh, through the years, Carol and I, have uh, taken to inviting them to come into our bedroom and have a seat on the end of the bed. And then we could uh, begin to talk about certain issues that needed to be clarified in their lives. Right? We would speak directly and hopefully lovingly to them. And uh, in the process, affirming our commitment to them, of course, that uh, we want to see them to grow to be good young men and women in the Lord. Well, last week, we had a uh, chance to be invited into the bedroom, maybe I should say summoned into the bedroom for um, one of Dad's bedroom chats, if you will. You'll permit me that uh, that metaphor. Jesus summoned us all last week, didn't he? And he spoke to us rather directly about the direction of our lives and certain changes that needed to be made, certain course corrections that I think we need to make. So this morning we are back in the bedroom because the talk is not yet over. Last week was more of the painful side of the conversation This week is uh, hopefully more of the encouragement side. You know, the Word of God wounds and it also binds up and heals. Last week was a wounding time, perhaps leaving some of you feeling a bit chastised. But today, hopefully, will be more of a healing time, more of an encouragement time, particularly as we heed the counsel of the Word of God. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. And we are going to finish this morning with the seven churches of the book of Revelation. So we are in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14, page 1227, if you are using a pew Bible. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, the last of the seven letters to the church, this one to the church at Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write... The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, 
that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We are going to finish this morning looking here at this church and the five facets of Christ's examination of the church here at Laodicea, things that we must understand so that we can discern what makes for a great church in the eyes of God. Now, last week I gave you a fair amount of background material to sort of set this text up, and I'm not going to take the time to go over all of that again. But let me just briefly remind you of a few of the salient points so that we can get our mind in gear here. The city of Laodicea, we noted last time, was located at the junction of several very important trade routes. And therefore, the city was a commercial center. It was known for its regional banking center. It was known for its textile trade. And it was known also for a rather famous medical school. And so through the industries of banking and textiles and medicine, the citizenry of Laodicea had become wealthy. Fabulously wealthy, actually, by measures of first century commerce. So wealthy, we noted last time, that they were even able to rebuild the city itself when it was devastated in an earthquake in A.D. 60 without help from any outside resources. Their own internal cash flow and savings were sufficient to rebuild this city. This was a wealthy place. We also noted last time that there was a a key strategic weakness of this city having to do with their water supply. That is that there was a lack of of adequate and, and clear water, drinking water, sort of a fundamental need for any city to uh, survive. And so this city was forced to bring water in from the outside through a, a long aqueduct that they had constructed, an aqueduct made of stone pipe, an aqueduct that lay partially buried beneath the ground, an aqueduct that by the time the water arrived there, we noted had uh, lost both its cleanliness and its coldness. And so it was a tepid, lukewarm water supply that was not very appetizing to any. We also noted last time there were two sister cities, Heropolis and Colossae. Heropolis known for their hot water springs that had medicinal value and Colossae known for its cold, clear drinking water. And here is Laodicea, the commercial powerhouse whose water supply is at best lukewarm, tepid unappealing, unappetizing. Yet they were successful. They were wealthy. 
They were a city that, as far as they were concerned, needed no outside help at all. This was a city that was self-sufficient. And this attitude of self-sufficiency had crept into the the life of the church. And so Jesus comes to this church in verse 14 to address this spiritual malaise of self-sufficiency. And he begins in verse 14, as he has in all of his addresses to the church, by addressing what we believe to be the pastor of the church, writing there in verse 14 to the angel, to the messenger, the angelos of the church at Laodicea. And there he speaks of himself in four, using four different titles. The Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And we noted last time that he, he self-consciously uses these titles in order to set up the address that to follow. The church at Laodicea was a church that was neither faithful nor genuine. The church at Laodicea needed a message to come to it, a very clear message, a very direct message, a very confrontational message, and it needed to come from one who was trustworthy and true. That is the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the one who was and is, it says, the beginning of the creation of God, the the originator of the creation would be another way to look at that. They needed to hear from God. They needed to hear in a very specific way. And so Jesus warns them here. He says, listen carefully to what I have to say. What I say to you will most assuredly come true. Both my threats and my promises. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So, He addresses them there in his command, verse 14. We noted last time that there was no commendation for this church of all the seven churches. This is the one in whom there is no one to be found commendable. Even in the other, some of the other churches that were involved in serious problems, there was at least a group of individuals that were called out for commendation here at Laodicea. No one, no one is commended by Christ at all. All are subject to his commendation. commendation or his condemnation and his condemnation we saw last time verses 15 and 17 was what it was that they were self-satisfied just like their water supply they were neither hot nor cold they were tepid they were unappetizing they were ready to be spewed out of the mouth of christ they were like a bottle of water left on the back seat of a car in the summertime, after you've been at the beach all day, right? And your throat is dry and parched and you're looking for something to drink. And there on the back seat of your car is a bottle of water. It doesn't make it, does it? Neither hot nor cold. This is the way the Laodicean church was. And because of that, Jesus says that he will spew them from his mouth. Verse 16, literally, he will vomit them out. They make him sick. This church makes Christ so sick that they they cause him to vomit. Well, just what is it about them that makes him so sick? What is it that that characterizes their Luke or defines their lukewarmness in, in Christ's sight? We have it here in verse 17. It is, they say, they are rich, they are wealthy, and they have need of nothing. They are so self-satisfied. They are so... Uh, occupied with their own worldly success that they have that they have no need for God. They imitate the city in which this church is founded. They don't believe they need help from anyone. 
And the tragedy of it all is not only do they need help, but they don't recognize that they need help. They are doubly cursed. They are secure in their affluence. And they are unaware of just how poor and wretched and blind and naked they really are. And so Jesus comes to them with the fourth facet of his examination this morning, beginning in verse 18. It is his correction. Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. It's fascinating. Here is a church that is smug in their satisfaction, thinking they've got all that they need. And, and Jesus comes to them. And notice he doesn't come with a command. He comes in the, and it's formulated in the form of advice. He comes to them with counsel. He says, listen, if I were you, I would <clears throat> buy something from me. I would buy something from me. And, and specifically, he says that I would, if I were you, I would buy from me the very things that you think you have. Gold. White garments, I salve. The very things that have made you wealthy, your, your banking industry, your textile industry, your medical industry, the things that you take your pride in, the things that you have, you have placed your hope in, these are the very things that have let you down. You are instead blind and poor and naked. I advise you, if you're smart, you'll pay attention and you will buy from me. To a city noted for its wealth, Christ says, buy from me that which you cannot afford. You are spiritually bankrupt, and yet you must make costly purchases. They have to abandon. They have to abandon their trust in their earthly wealth. And they need to buy from Christ that which they cannot afford. Now, immediately, your mind races back to the Old Testament. Back to Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1, where in a similar situation, Yahweh addresses the nation of Israel. And he says to them there in Isaiah 55 and verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, that's the way God does commerce. He's always addressing people and calling them to purchase from him that which they have no means to afford. Because the means by which they will get it is only the grace of God. And it only comes when they recognize the fact that they do not have the resources in themselves to buy that which they really need. So Jesus turns this on them in verse 18. The very things that he has criticized, their fact of their poverty and their blindness and their, and their nakedness, he says, now you must resolve this by purchasing from me the very commodities which will cure your problem. Gold, verse 18. Buy from me gold refined by fire. Spiritual wealth, I think, is what he's talking about here. He's talking to them about, I think, we could easily say the kingdom of heaven, that which in the Matthew 13, Jesus calls the, the treasure in the field, right? Or the pearl of great price, that of inestimable value. Buy that from me, buy the gold that has been refined in the fire so that you may become truly rich. Buy from me spiritual wealth. Beyond that, buy from me white garments that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. He summons the church here to cover their nakedness with these 
garments of righteousness, these white garments. And throughout the book of Revelation, the the, uh, white garments appear, this uh, symbolism appears over and over again. And it speaks about the righteous deeds of the people of God who have been made righteous by Christ. For example, Revelation 19, verse 8 It says there, and it was given to her, that is the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. You need something to cover yourself. You need a robe of righteousness. You need something to cover your nakedness and you will get it only from me. Buy it from me. Do you know in the biblical time, much contrary to today, nakedness was shameful. In fact, when a conquering army came in and, and um, besieged the city and then uh, you know, conquered the city, what they would do is they would take the remaining captives and they would strip them naked. And then they would fasten them together in a long chain gang and parade them back to their city. It was a shameful thing to, be, to have your clothes stripped from you, to be found as naked. It is merely a symbol of our or a symptom, I guess I would say, of our own depraved culture in which people flaunt their nakedness. It is something shameful. And that's what he's talking about here as he said that you need to cover the shame of your nakedness. And notice he says, by the way, you clothe yourself in these white garments. That's a kind of a, a, a one-time activity that will occur. And then he says that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Revealed when? Revealed when? I think what he's talking about is that when Christ returns, when Christ returns for His church and the rapture of the church occurs and the true church is taken off the glory and the false church remains behind, it would then be revealed those who were truly naked, those who had no garments of righteousness, those who were found to be shameful. And what he's saying is cover yourself now so that when that occurs, you will not be left behind. You will not found to be Shameful. Lastly, he says, buy from me I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. They are confident in their vision. They think they can see reality. And Jesus says to them, you're blind. You cannot see reality at all. So you need from me that which will open your eyes so that you may truly see. Your spiritual blindness needs to be cured. You need the ability to discern the truth, and that only comes through me. They need true spiritual wealth, the gold. They need real righteousness, the white garments. They need the ability to discern the truth, that is, the eyesaw of Christ. They need that which they do not have and that which they cannot achieve by their own power and strength. They need Christ. And so he moves to a challenge in verse 19. He challenges them. And he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. It's interesting here because the tone of the letter changes at this point. Up to this point, he has been pretty aggressive with them. He has spoken to them some very direct and and some very hurtful words. But here it it turns a little bit in verse 19. There's a transition. He goes from spewing them out to speaking about his love for them. He affirms his love for them, his commitment for them. The same attitude of love, I think, that can be found, for example, over in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, 
where there the uh, rich young ruler came to Christ. Do you remember that? And Jesus spoke to him in Mark 10, 21. It says, and looking at him, Jesus felt love for him. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus loved that rich young ruler who we know turned from Christ and walked away, it says, because he had tremendous wealth and he was unable and unwilling to give it up. So Jesus has a love for these people. And he says, I love you. Those to whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. The idea of reproof and discipline is the idea of a father with his son. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Over in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, the idea of God's reproof and discipline is made a measuring stick of whether you truly belong to God or not. Hebrews 12, 8, it says, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons at all. You remember last time that I told you I struggled all week and struggled again this week further with whether he is addressing backslidden believers here in this church at Laodicea or hypocritical unbelievers. And last week, I, my conclusion was they were hypocritical unbelievers, and I remain with that um, persuasion, at least at this time this morning. But I can tell you that this verse is one of the reasons that I struggle so much in this passage. This idea of reproving and disciplining in other passages of Scripture seems to relate to those that are his children. So whether they really are his children are in a backslidden state needing to be revived, or whether they are hypocritical unbelievers... It really doesn't matter, I suppose, because the, um, the response is the same, right? In verse 19, look. Be zealous, therefore, and do what? Repent. The solution is the same. The solution is the same. Whether they are unregenerate hypocrites or backslidden believers, the solution is the same. It is to repent. He calls them to repentance. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. This repentance, by the way, is uh, grammatically is a one-time event. It is an event of repentance. It is the idea of turning from where you are to God. Turning from a, uh, where you are facing away from God to God in a one-time event. But where he says to be zealous, there is a, a continuous action idea to that verb. And the idea there is to be continuously zealous. Turn from your ways your self-sufficiency and turn to Christ and then continue zealously for Christ after that. It's also interesting by the word that, by the way, the uh, verb translated here is zealous. Zeluo is, uh, is related to the noun zestos, uh, which is um, translated hot in verses 15 and 16. So he says here that you are to be zealous. You are to be continually zealous. You, I think you're not too far out of line if you if you would think of it as you must be continually hot for Christ. Turn from your self-sufficiency and be continually hot for Jesus Christ. This is an encouragement, beloved. This verse should encourage everyone. And the reason it should encourage you is because what it tells us is that being lukewarm is not a terminal event. That is that you do not have to remain in a lukewarm condition. 
If you find yourself this morning lukewarm, if you went through that self-evaluation that I gave you last week and you went down the line and your conclusion was that I am lukewarm for Christ, you don't have to remain there. There is hope. There is rescue. If this Laodicean church can can come away from that, if they can become hot for Christ, then we can become hot and you can become hot as well. The hope is dramatic. And it is dramatically pictured for us here in verse 20. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. What an amazing statement of condescension. Here is the God of the universe, right? Look up again to verse 14. The beginning of creation, the originator of all the created order, who now humbles himself and pictures himself as one standing outside the door of his own church, knocking and requesting permission to come in. It's incredible. It's incredible. Here is the sovereign one. Knocking on the door and requesting admittance back into his own church. And notice where he says there, if anyone hears my voice. He takes it right down to the personalized nature. If but one person in this Laodicean church will wake up, will hear his voice, will open the door and invite him in. He will come, he says, and he will die. By the way, this letter is Christ's knocking. This letter to the church at Laodicea is the knock of Christ. It is his banging at their door. It is his plea to them to let him in. The metaphor of Christ standing at the door is a familiar image in the New Testament. It's a very familiar image, and it is related to the end of the world as we know it. It is spoken of often. For example, Mark chapter 13, verse 29. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Luke 12 Verse 36. And be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. James 5. Verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. This concept here in verse 20 where he says, I stand at the door and knock is an eschatological context. It is speaking of the end of time as we know it. It is speaking of the ushering in of the end of the age. And he is saying, I'm standing here and through this letter I am knocking, I am appealing to you Laodiceans and beyond them, right? Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear. Beyond them to any and every church 
where Christ has been excluded. But he not only stands there and knocks at the door. And he says, if anyone hears me and opens me, look what he says he'll do. He'll come in to them and dine with them. And he with me. He continues the motif of the eschatos of the end times. The word translated dine refers to the evening meal in the of a Jewish family life. It's the it's the meal of the day most commonly associated with fellowship and friendship. It's the meal at the end of the day in which you would invite in your friends and your neighbors and your extended family and you would have a time together around the table. It's the same word used over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 25 referring back to the night in which Jesus was betrayed when he had a last what? Supper with his disciples. Same word. I will come into him and will take this supper with him and he with me. He's speaking again of the messianic banquet. The supper at the end of the age. The meal that is often used to symbolize fellowship in the kingdom of God. Again, Luke 22, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Or Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 26, verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Revelation 19, verse 9. And he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The Messiah's kingdom is pictured frequently as a great banquet, as a great communion meal, as a great time when the people of God are gathered together and they break bread together. And and if Jesus' words in Matthew 26, 29 mean anything, when they will share on the fruit of the vine again together in a great celebratory banquet. A time when evil has been restrained and Christ now sits rightfully upon his throne. A time that we look forward to the feasting time of the great messianic banquet. And so look at verse 20 again. What is Jesus saying to this church and through them to all churches? He's using metaphors, speaking of the metaphor of being at the door, using the metaphor of the of the great messianic banquet. What he is saying to them is that the time is at hand. My return is imminent. We've talked about that, haven't we? In one letter after another, he says, I am right there. I'm about to return. It could be any moment. And when I return. If you will, but let me in, you will participate In the great banquet. This is their final opportunity. Their final opportunity to avoid the tribulation to come. This is the opportunity for this church to repent. To become hot for Jesus Christ. 
to receive him back into the church and to enjoy the messianic banquet. Should they refuse him admittance when he comes and the true churches caught away their nakedness and the shame of their nakedness will be revealed and they will find themselves going through the horrible period of the tribulation. Beloved, this is the context that flows through. Look at verse 21 where he says, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. This passage is eschatological from beginning to end. Now, we ought to make this observation. And that is that churches are made up of individuals. Probably sounds like an unnecessary observation, right? But I think it's an important one to make because there is a sense in which the knocking is a personalized knocking as well. There is a sense, and this passage does have evangelistic overtones. It is written to a church. It is speaking about a church allowing people in, but churches are made of people, and so it is speaking to you this morning. It is speaking to you. And that is, will you be part of the great messianic banquet? Will you invite Christ in that he might dine with you and you with him? Or will you reject him and leave him on the outside? That when he does return, the shame of your nakedness will be revealed. When you find yourself left behind. Jesus says to he who overcomes... That's another way of speaking of someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. To he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also came, overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He says to this Laodicean church and through them to us. If you will heed the knocking of Christ, repent and receive the true spiritual riches that he offers, that which, verse 18, he advises you to buy without cost, then you will, the promise will be fulfilled in you that you will sit down and reign and rule with him. This is not a new promise, by the way. This promise is repeatedly used in the New Testament. To the 12 apostles over in Matthew 19, Jesus spoke of the same things. You will rule with me. To the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul speaks to them and says, Do you not know that you will judge the angels? To the church at Thyatira here in Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27, he says, And to him who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds, until the end to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. It's spoken here now to the Laodiceans. It's extended to them. If they will heed the message, if they will heed the advice, if they will open the door, then they too will reign with Christ. Beloved, that's true of us. It's true of us. It's the same promise to you and I. If you will repent and begin to continue zealously for Jesus Christ, then you too shall reign with Him. To him who has an ear, verse 22, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is speaking not just 
to the Laodicean church. We saw this, this phrase is used over and over and over again to every one of the churches. That expands this book out to all Christians of all ages. You know, the book of Revelation is written to the church. That may be sound obvious to you. But sometimes people say, well, Pastor, if you, if you believe that the church is going to be raptured at the beginning of the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, then in what meaningful way is the rest of the book of the Revelation with talking about the tribulation have anything to do with me? I'm not going to be here. It might be a curiosity, but how does it speak directly to me and to Christians through the ages? Well, I'm going to give you the answer to that question. We spoke of it a number of weeks ago. The book of Revelation presents two different endings to the same movie. It gives you an alternative ending. It lays out for you two paths. For those who walk in righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ, they escape the tribulation and they enter back in in chapter 20, the beginning of the millennial reign. For those that refuse Christ, they have the alternative ending, which is that they go into the time of the tribulation, a time of incredible persecution and catastrophe. That for those who, even in the midst of that, refuse to repent, return to the Lord Jesus Christ, they find themselves ultimately in the lake of fire. This book has everything to do with the church. It has everything to do with you this morning. It's presenting to you two clear paths. The path of blessing through obedience, the path of devastation through disobedience. To him who has ears to hear, let him hear. How do we apply this as we wrap up this last letter? Well, last week I gave you a number of areas. I think I listed 12 or 13. Some people had 14. I don't even know how many I listed. I gave you a number of areas where you could perform some self-evaluation with regard to your spiritual temperature, right? Places, and by the way, they all came out, they were not very difficult to come up with because all I had to do was sit down for about an hour at my desk and think about my own life. And I could just begin to write them down rather quickly. Tests for lukewarmness I gave to you. Expressions of lukewarm Christianity. And a number of you went out of here last week feeling somewhat overwhelmed by your failure to measure up. That's good. That's good. I wish more of you had. I wish more of you had had that same feeling of being overwhelmed. You see, when we examine our lives against the Scriptures, we should feel overwhelmed. We should see all over the place where we don't measure up. If we can look at a list like that and we only find one or maybe two places where we don't quite make the grade, but we're getting close, we haven't looked hard enough. Beloved, you do not measure up. You do fall short. And you fall short on every single account. So what do you do when you realize you've fallen short? That you're not living up to the standards of God. What do you do? Well, if your immediate response is to make a plan, I know what I'll do. I'll do this, and then I'll do this, and then I'll do this, and that'll fix the problem. If that's your immediate response, or if your response is something like this, well, I'll rededicate my life to Jesus Christ, and I'll try a little harder this time. 
There are some churches where they have altar calls every week where people can come forward and rededicate their lives. And then a few weeks later, they come forward and rededicate their lives again. And a little while later, they come forward and they rededicate their lives again until they wear out their rededicators. And every time they come forward, they say, well, this time it's going to work. I'm just going to try a little bit harder. Or perhaps your thoughts were, well, I'll just find somebody to hold me accountable. That's what I need. I just need somebody to hold me accountable. Somebody who, who I can call when I'm, when I'm in, in the midst of temptation. I'll just call them and they'll talk me out of it. That's what I'll do. If this is your response, if this is the typical response that formulates in your heart, something along these lines when you come under conviction of sin, then you have fallen to the sin of self-sufficiency. You are right in the middle of the thick of self-sufficiency and you don't even know it. You are self-deceived. If you think that you can, by making a plan in your flesh, accomplish the righteousness of God, you are completely deluded. You are destined to failure. It doesn't matter how complicated your plan is. It doesn't matter how many accountability partners you arrange around your life. It doesn't matter how many times you rededicate yourself to Christ. You will fail. And you will fail again and again and again. So what do you do? What is the response? It's here in the text. Look at your, let your Bible, your eyes go to your Bible again. What did he say to them? Verse 18, declare your bankruptcy and then buy from Christ that which you cannot afford. The gospel. The gospel is what you need. What is the gospel? What is it? Is it just something for those who are outside the church, the unbeliever? Is that where the gospel ends? Oh, no. The gospel is for us. The gospel is for me. The gospel is for you. The gospel is your only hope. I'm guilty before a holy God. That's where it begins. I am guilty before a holy God. Uncle, I admit, I am blind, I am poor, I am wretched, I am miserable, I am naked. What can I offer him to avert his wrath? What do I have that I can give to this God to avert his wrath? Because his judgment is surely coming on me and I surely deserve it. I'm guilty. Maybe I can offer him a gift. Let me bring him a gift and assuage his wrath that way. No, wait a minute, I can't do that. He's the creator. He owns everything. What gift would I bring him? What do I have that I could bring him that he does not already own? Maybe I can offer him my good deeds. You know, once in a while I do something right. Maybe that's enough. If I just work on that, focus on that. You know, maybe one good deed a day and, you know, over a long time they'll stack up. Maybe that's enough. Oh, yeah. Even my good deeds are tainted by my sin. Even my good deeds are not really good. 
for they are infected by this disease that inhabits my soul called sin. I can't bring him a gift. I can't do anything to convince him not to punish me. Maybe I can offer another in my place. I know. How about an animal? Maybe he'll slay an animal instead of me. The blood of an innocent one in the place of a guilty party. How about that? I mean, that's what they did in the Old Testament, didn't they? Why can't I just have an animal slaughtered in my place? Their life for mine. Oh, yeah. We're not of equal value, are we? I'm a man made in the image of God to rule over the animal creation. It's not their life for mine. It's not equal value. The blood of an animal can never atone for the sin of my soul. Doesn't matter how many I slaughter. There's not enough value there. It won't add up. I go this way and I'm boxed in. I go that way and I'm cut off. I turn this way and it's a brick wall. My sin, my guilt it resides on me. Where is my escape? I need someone to die for me. That's the only way I'm going to escape. I need a sinless man to die in my place. I need a human being to stand in for a human being. And it can't be just any old man. You see, because everybody else that I've ever met and ever heard of has the same problem I do. They're afflicted with the same mortal disease. I need a sinless man. His life for mine. Where do I find such a man? Where do I go to find such a one who will stand in for me? The Bible says God loved me and sent his son to be the propitiation for my sin. Jesus is my sinless sacrifice. He is the gift that can atone or cover for the sin of my soul. But his death in my place removes my guilt. But it takes me only to a position of neutrality. I'm still not righteous. I'm still a sinner. The moment after I've come to Christ in faith, I've poured myself out on Him. I'm leaning on Him. My sin, my guilt, it's gone. But I'm not righteous. I'm a long way from righteous. I need positive righteousness. Neutral is not good enough. Jesus said that you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I'm not perfect. How do I get in? How do I find acceptance before God? I mean, the death of Christ, okay, he's taken my guilt. He won't slaughter me for it, but I'm still cut off from him. I need righteousness. I need real righteousness. And where am I going to find it? 
He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become what? The righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus is my righteousness. See, He fulfilled the law, right? He's the one who kept the law. He's the one in whom there is no sin. He fulfilled the law for me on my behalf. That when I come to Him by faith, my sin has been atoned for in His death. My life is now covered with the robe of His righteousness and I now stand before God acceptable in His sight. His love for me now is every bit as great as His love for Christ, His own Son. And when I mess up, when I fall short, when I don't do what I know I should, when I do the things I know I should not do, God's love for me never varies. My righteousness is never diminished. In the words of the Apostle Paul, he floods me with even more grace to keep the righteousness alive. And I remain in a perfect state of acceptance before my Creator. Beloved, this is the gospel. This is the solution. This is the answer to being lukewarm. It's to return to the gospel. It is to buy that for which I have no ability to purchase. It is to throw myself on Jesus Christ. And when my heart and mind are firmly rooted in this gospel, then my love for God motivates my, my obedience to Him. I begin to do that what I should do out of love for Christ. And it's from this position of dependence that I am now free to put in place my plan to set my alarm clock 20 minutes earlier so that I will get up tomorrow morning 20 minutes earlier and open my Bible and read about this God who loves me and whom I love in return. Do you see the difference? One is legalism. It is self-effort. It's an attempt to achieve that which cannot be achieved in your own strength. How many times have you tried to read the Bible? You've made a, made a New Year's commitment. I'm going to read the Bible this year, and next year you fall short. How many times? But if by faith you become persuaded that the God of the universe loves you enough to send His Son to die in your place and to give you His righteousness, then your love in return will motivate you every morning to open those pages and to get to know this God even more. It's okay to make your plan. It's a good thing to do. Just get it in the right order. And remember... Remind yourself that your acceptance before God never depends upon the success of your plan. It lies on only one thing. It lies upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Beloved, do not forget the gospel. Let's pray.